You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington. My research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Dimitru Erhan, who is currently a research scientist at Google Brain. His research focuses on understanding the world with neural networks, including video prediction, model-based reinforcement learning, and enabling agents that can generalize to new tasks, goals, and environments quickly. Dimitru's PhD thesis is titled Understanding Deep Architectures and the Effect of Unsupervised Pre-Training, which he completed in 2010 at the University of Montreal. He did his PhD in Yashua Bengio's lab at a time that was critical for the development of deep learning as we know it today. We talk about the deep belief networks that he worked with in the thesis and how they relate to today's models, then discuss his work on better understanding how deep networks perform on problems with several factors of variation, why unsupervised pre-training helped the models of the time, and what representations the models have learned. Throughout, we discuss his perspective on the recent rise of deep learning and how what he worked on during his PhD influences his thinking today. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you would like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash thesis review, where you can subscribe and become a recurring supporter, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Dimitru Erhan with Understanding Deep Architectures and the Effect of Unsupervised Pre-Training on the Thesis Review. Your thesis dealt with understanding deep architectures and the different learning methods for them. I thought to start out, we'd kind of take a step back and look at this this word understanding and kind of more broadly, what would it mean to understand deep learning? That's a good question. Um, you know, I I the the in preparation for this for this discussion, I was like man, I, I should probably reread my own thesis. Uh, um, and, you know, I was, I was, I was reading a bit, some of the, some of the philosophical mumblings or ramblings that I had in the beginning and the end of it. And I, I sort of agree with the, the, the a version of myself from 10, 11 years ago, where I think understanding is from, I, I view it from as kind of a scientific point of view, sort of whatever science means is understanding the world around us and machine learning is, kind of an, a way of understanding the world um, or of at least modeling the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's how I view machine learning. It is a way for us to to make sense of the world. And then just deep learning is just so deep architectures is just, you know, a subset of, of what machine learning. Now it's, now it's a big subset. Uh, back then it was a small subset. Um, and understanding is like, is basically, you know, you know why? Why do these techniques work? You know how do they how do they work? Um, where do they break down? And then, 
in which ways do they break down? How can we build techniques to to better analyze, visualize, um, compare, contrast these these methods? Um, so that's that's kind of my my view on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I was talking about that I was discussing with a previous guest. Um, his background was in neuroscience, and we were thinking about like whether there's differences in the type of understanding that you would go for in something like neuroscience versus machine learning. Um, do you think that there's some kind of difference there that maybe in machine learning we're ultimately interested in some task or like the other argument would be that we can actually just understand properties of certain models and that's interesting in and of itself independent of any task? Right. Um, I think... Uh, both are interesting, right? So, and I and I think the difference between sort of neuroscience and machine learning is that neuroscience typically you can't quite change the mo- the underlying model, right? <laughs> um, so, or or we try not to uh, sort of change the human brain. Um, uh, whereas we, we we try quite a lot to change the the models that we use in machine learning, right? Uh, and we we always want to make them better, right? So. Um, I, I do think there's there's value to both to both sort of uh, changing an understanding, but also understanding existing architectures or paradigms, right? Especially if they're like widely used by many people, right? Um, right. Yeah. Maybe to start, let's talk about the path you took towards towards getting to this PhD, where you where you looked into understanding deep networks. So, kind of, what was your background and? Uh, when did you initially get interested in research and then decide to do a PhD? Um, I got into this into the field of machine learning sort of a bit by accident, actually. Um, I so I I did this. I was I was a, I was a undergrad in in Germany, and then I applied for this like internship exchange program, I, and I just randomly got uh, assigned to do an internship in uh, in Helsinki. Um, and Finland has a proud tradition of sort of like sort of more and more old-fashioned by now, kind of, and even by then, uh, machine learning kind of you know uh, research like self-organizing maps and things like this. Um, so the I, I did an internship there, and I had I have no idea what machine learning was, <laughs> which was an, an interesting sort of you know experience of doing a machine learning internship without any background in machine learning. But it seemed fun. Um, and then I went back to my to my university. And then I found that we have a professor there who, who was doing machine learning. Um, and so I was like, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to take your class and I want to do a project with you, a bachelor's thesis. So I, I did. It was something about pre-training recurrent neural networks or something like that mm-hmm. um, with echo state networks, which is uh, the hotness at, at that time. And uh, it it was it was very exciting. And at the end of the bachelor's program, I was I asked him, this is Herbert Yeager. I asked him, can you recommend me like like graduate programs somewhere in the world, uh, people that I can contact and uh, and ask them if they want to take me as a student. Mm-hmm. And I I still have that that paper somewhere. He he like hand wrote a bunch of a bunch of names. And I emailed all these people, you know, looking back, they were all like the who's who of machine learning, uh, which is kind of funny. It was like Jeff Hinton and Joshua Bengio and Bernal Shokov and a few other ones. Um, 
but like if you were to sort of you know find who are the most famous researchers in machine learning in 2004 they were all of them <laughs> so but I, I i basically had no idea who they were um and surprisingly most of them replied uh, a bunch of them said no uh yoshua benjo said yes uh, and his very classical sort of style of Yoshua Benjo, he just said yes. Like I wrote a very long email and he basically said, yes, okay, you can be my student. Um, and I ended up as his student. I did a master's with him. Um, and the master's was uh, not really about deep learning, but it was about like multitask kernel SVMs, things like that. Um, and this was fun. And then I decided to to stick around. Um, and uh, a bit to my surprise, Joshua was hesitant to, to have me as a PhD student after my master's thesis. He explained this as, um, uh, in, in, in hindsight, kind of a funny sort of argument. He's like, well, it's 2006. I'm about to embark my lab on this whole like deep learning thing. This is very new. Uh, I don't know if it's going to pan out. Um, you know, I don't want you to take a risk and do a, a thesis on something that may ultimately end up being a useless topic. Hmm. Um, so I want you to think hard if you want to take this risk <laughs> and come, come back to me in a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, it did give me some pause, but in the end, I'm like, I'm young and I can take this risk. So I ended up doing a PhD in deep learning. I see. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I looked through your resume before and I saw that you'd worked on these Echo state networks and RNNs early on. Mm -hmm. Do you remember why those were being used? Was it for the particular problem you were working on, or was that actually popular back in the two thousand four? I don't think that they were that popular. I think so. So they were so echo state networks were, um, you know, something that Herbert Yeager invented, uh, and they they have some interesting properties. It's basically like you know you you have this RNN and you initialize most of its weights to to random and just train the output layer, which is linear. And if you initialize those random weights just the right way, uh, it turns out that you can do you know, some pretty pretty neat stuff. You can, I, think it, I think it can be a universal approximator and things like that. And because you, you, you initialize them randomly and you keep them fixed, uh, it's very easy to train after that, the, just the output layer. Um, and it did well on these like somewhat synthetic but kind of chaotic time series prediction tasks. Um, and you know, I I don't know what what ended up happening to to that kind of set of techniques. It's, it's hard to say. The field as a whole was very small back then, so I don't you know, I don't I don't quite know how popular they were. Like there was not that many papers to read. I see. So then, when you're starting this PhD, um, like you talked about the risk. What ultimately made you kind of suspect or or believe that this would be something worth spending, you know, the next four or five years of of your time on? Um, I I mean I I was excited about the a bit the prospect of of studying the unknown, mm. right? I think that was that was you know a, a period of 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 excitement. Because we we seem to have have these techniques, which worked, but no one seemed to really ha know why, and that's kind of a good place to be when you're doing research. I find, um, uh, like if you have a set of techniques and you know why they work, um, 
it's a bit more boring, I'd say, than <laughs> than if you if you have something that works but you have no idea why, right? So it, you know, everyone had their own hypotheses, and Jeff Hinton, of course, said that these work, the the, the deep belief networks work because this is how the brain works. But I don't know if anyone really truly believed him. Um, so I think I think that that was that was that's that was a good sort of reason to to stick around. Mm-hmm. And you know, realistically, also the it seemed like there was a lot of excitement in the field itself, right? There was more and more people like working on this, and um, you know, I still remember there was this like. Um, I think 2007 or so, there was this uh, Neurips, uh, there was a rejected workshop, it was a famous one on uh, on deep learning. Uh, and they made it kind of a rogue workshop. Uh, they called it a symposium. And there were like 600 people that came to it, which was a huge amount of people for, like, this was half of the conference back then. Uh, and I was like, wow, this field is in, you know incredibly popular. Uh, like people really excited about it. So that that convinced me that I should I should continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah, one thing that was interesting about reading through your thesis is um, like the different references that you put. I, I was trying to put myself in the mindset of kind of what was known at the time. And there was two that jumped out at me. So one was you referenced this paper by Jeff Hinton in 2006. And it was basically saying that these deep belief networks, uh, you know, had really good performance on MNIST. Uh, but then in contrast, there was this paper from Yashua Bengio in 2007, and it was basically saying that um, training with multiple layers would get stuck in local minima. And so if we kind of just looked at that one result, it might actually suggest that this is like a negative result against deep learning. So so how do, how do you kind of uh, move past that or, or like keep the, you know, keep the um, the effort going towards eventually getting this to work when you do see some negative results coming in yeah i mean i think i think it's it's a bit easier to keep moving if you have proof of something that works right if you only have negative results it's of course it's difficult <laughs> um uh but in some sense there was that was an easier situation in 2007 right there was some some there were a couple of recipes where we knew that that they worked um, and then there were a couple of recipes where we just, we knew that it, things didn't work. So, and then, you know, just, there were, it was in, in many ways, there were some papers that, that we wrote that were kind of like easy papers, right. In some sense, it's like, well, we'll just explore the space in between and see what, you know, what works and what doesn't, right. We'll just try to cover, uh, like we'll pre-train like this and pre-train like that and change this kind of layer into this kind of activation um that you know you quickly run run out of this sort of low-hanging fruit like that but uh there were there were a bunch of low-hanging fruit but. Mm-hmm. And, and so i guess you kind of had enough evidence to suggest that that things were working and that potentially if you just kept on this line then things would work even better that's right that's right yeah yeah and then so i guess the kind of common methods at the time were a bit different than today in the sense that your thesis centered around this deep belief network. So just because I think it would be valuable for the rest of the conversation, did you just want to introduce what is a deep belief network and kind of why were they popular at the time? 
so um I'll start with the with the second part. It's like why they were the popular is because they, you know, Jeff Hinton and collaborators showed that you know they could get uh, state of the art results on MNIST. Um, this was two thousand six, where MNIST was still you know the thing to to work on, um, and they were they did they were working better than than support vector machines, which were the the technique to beat at the time, mm-hmm. and. Um, deep belief networks. I mean, it's a it's a very specific set of things that uh, that that paper introduces, right? So it's it's um, it's kind of a generative model. I mean, not kind of. You can generate so you know images from it uh, or samples. It doesn't have to be images, but um, and it's it's trained in a very peculiar way, right? So there's it's a stack of what they call restricted Boltzmann machines. Um, a restricted Boltzmann machine is a uh, particularly sort of efficient version of a Boltzmann machine mm-hmm. um, that you you have these uh, input kind of variables and hidden variables, and they form a bipartite graph, and you can do efficient inference and kind of efficient learning in that in that uh, in that model, right? So you you can with with what learning is done with the with this method called contrastive divergence. Um, so this combination of using a stack of restricted Boltzmann machines, um, uh, where they're sort of they are trained one on top of each other. So you train a restricted Boltzmann machine, uh, you fix its weights, you propagate basically the input to to the to the hidden. You do inference, uh, and you use the inferred values to train another restricted Boltzmann machine, and you do this until until you until you reach layer layer number three. Which was the most layers that people did those days, mm-hmm. um, and you use kind of a contrastive divergence uh, to 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 train those weights, um, and that gave you that gave you a model of the data of your input distribution, um, and then people did various different things. But I think the the most common thing that people did at that time is to to use this as um, uh, the, that that model that stack of restricted Boltzmann machines as a way to initialize uh, a network. So you basically take those, those, those weights that you've trained. You may stack like a softmax layer on top of it, or you may do something else. Jeff did different things, but it doesn't matter. But you, you effectively, it boils down to initializing a, a neural network with a softmax layer on top, and you did supervised learning uh, with the stochastic gradient descent using those weights as initial values. Um, and that... That, that that sort of two-stage approach uh, of of training this this unsupervised generative model followed by by supervised model uh, that seemed to have done the trick. Why do you think they became less popular over time? Um, I think a combination of realization that we can. We can eliminate. So you know, one of the thing, one of the blind spots that we had in in two thousand six, like from two thousand six to two thousand ten or so, um, which was heavily influenced by you know um, by by the the common wisdom from the eighties and nineties of how to train neural networks. Um, it was the choice of the of the nonlinearity. Um, so every single person back then used sigmoid or some, some sort of version of a sigmoid nonlinearity in the neural network. And this was heavily influenced by this paper 
by Jan Lequin and probably others. I think it's called something like Tips and Tricks on Training Neural Network. It's from some 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 late 90s, 98, I think. Mm-hmm. And it it you know everyone is basically was using that as a as a bit of a bible as like how to initialize your network, uh, what, what kind of distribution of random weights, and how to choose a nonlinearity. So we we all use that. Um, but the sigma nonlinearity actually turns out to be a pretty bad choice, uh, and is probably the the reason why we were not able to train deeper and deeper network. Mm. And so once we had enough compute power in 2010-ish and uh, rectified linear units uh, were, I don't want to say discovered, but they were shown uh, to be very much superior to sigmoidal type units. Uh, the combination of those two, I think, um, kind of obviated the need for pre-training. Basically, we, we were able to train just gianter deeper networks on bigger data sets, lots of compute, uh, and we didn't suffer from the same uh, deficiencies as before. And so then, but this, uh, this idea of like stacking these RBMs, could we potentially re- revisit this idea or... Do we are do we have alternatives that kind of just make these not worth bringing back in some sense? I don't know if stacking RBMs specifically is gonna come back. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I don't. Know. <laughs> uh, I I do think though that the idea of using um unsupervised some unsupervised signal to somehow initialize your 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 supervised training has some merit to it um if only because generally speaking we tend to have more unsupervised data available to us right mm. um so you could you could if you're able to somehow make use of um uh of uh, tons of unsupervised data to somehow learn good features uh, that that then you can easily transfer by simply initializing basically your your network for supervised learning. That's probably a, a good thing. Whether that should be done by RBMs is debatable. You could probably do this with GANs or VAEs or something else, right? Whatever. Whatever is more cooler these days. Right, yeah. Maybe we could start talking through what you did in the thesis. So uh, as you're going through the PhD, when did you begin to kind of form this idea? Well, like the first section, for instance, is on these different factors of variation. And it seems like here the goal was to uh, kind of show that these deep networks outperformed shallow ones. So when did this kind of become a, a goal of your research? Right. So this was influenced by um, by a lot of uh, discussions with my my supervisor uh, Joshua Benjo. Mm-hmm. So he uh, and Jan, they had this paper. I forget what it's called. I think it's called the Learning Deep Architectures for AI or something like that. It's it's not a. They don't. I don't think they introduce any new results in there. Or maybe there's a couple of theorems, but uh, it's more of a position paper from mm-hmm. from around to the. 17-ish. Um, uh, 
and it's basically like a like a mission statement. They're basically saying that oh, shallow architectures uh, are simply not that good at at um, at capturing at learning when the data set has a lot of factors of variation. Right. I think they even use that particular wording. Right. Um, and they have a, a couple of these like theorems um, on like oh, if you're trying to learn the parity function uh, or something of that type. Uh, you you need like an exponential number of of, of units in your uh, in your shallow architecture, uh, but maybe you only need like a linear number of units in your deep architecture. Um, but we didn't actually have any empirical results back then showing uh, showing what they claim basically, right? That that like MNIST it was basically the only dataset on which there were some results. Um, and uh, it didn't really have what I would call many factors of variation. It's a relatively simple data set. Um, so that was the main thing. It's like, well, we claim Joshua and Jan and a bunch of people, they seem to believe this. Um, why don't we sort of construct such data sets such that they uh, do have kind of complexity in them uh, and try to see? Uh, are, tr are deep networks truly able to take advantage of depth to, to do better? You mentioned this term of AI set tasks. Mm -hmm. Was that kind of a conceptual idea that there are some unknown set of tasks which would define what an AI should do? Or was that actually a concrete set of tasks that they already had written down? I think it was more of a philosophical kind of set of tasks. Yeah. I, don't, I think that would be very challenging <laughs> to enumerate. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, okay. I, I would have been surprised. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That 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 paper uh, was not like a proposing like here's the list of tasks that an AI should do. Uh, mm -hmm. it's more, I think they were giving some sort of examples like well that an, an AI should be able to be robust to rotations and should be able to be robust to whatever background and that and that right. Uh, so all kinds of. Uh, invariances like that, that there should be there. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, it was, a, it was a cool idea to think about, though. And so then the strategy you used here, I guess, was to um, kind of manually construct these different problems to test the networks on, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. As I was reading through this, I, I started thinking, like, in some sense, these tasks were synthetic in, in the sense that you are, for example, like modifying MNIST, modifying the background for it. And so do you think that in, in today's day, these synthetic tasks, I mean, not these specifically, uh, still play some role, uh, even with today's models, which are performing well on more and more complex tasks, that there's kind of a, um, a part of research that really benefits from just these manually constructed synthetic type tasks. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm a big believer in in such in in sort of synthetically kind of you know introducing, I guess let's call them factors of variation, right? And and um, I think we even have like a maybe we're gonna have a project on this as well. Um, there's this paper that was uh, put out by a couple of my colleagues called um, Distracting Control Suite. It's a mm -hmm. it's basically a wrapper on top of the DeepMind Control Suite. Uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's a set of sort of environments uh, for for reinforcement learning 
um, mm-hmm. you can train a bunch of you know agents to perform various tasks. Um, and it's the ideas are strikingly similar, right? So there's there's the idea of like, oh well, let's just put a instead of it's not a natural image anymore, it's a natural video. So let's put a natural video background. Or let's try to change the camera viewpoint. Or let's try to change the colors of the objects and things like that. Um, and I think it's pretty reasonable to to construct these things um, because generally um, you don't you know if you just collect a data set from the web or or just then youtube videos or things like that you don't have control over over what changes so it's hard to sort of make um kind of statements like scientifically valid statements i find um and you know for instance one of the things which were which was fun about the stuff that we did is we we introduced sort of noisy backgrounds into this like around mnist but we also did we we um we controlled the amount of correlation in the noise, right? Um, instead of just like random uniform noise, we had like a structured Gaussian noise. Um, and the hypothesis there is that, would, that this would make things harder. And it did. And you could control the amount of correlation and the amount of structure that you induced. And that made things significantly harder for all the models that we tested. Yeah, that's a good point that um... When you have more control, then it almost goes back to this question of understanding that uh, we might actually be able to better understand something if we have a controllable synthetic data set uh, versus just doing a more like end-to-end type tasks. But uh, of course, both are both are important. And and then you know I I should say it's the the converse of this is what what a lot of people do is instead of instead of building, uh, instead of introducing controllable factors of variation into their data sets, is what people do is they do after-the-fact analysis over, uh, you know, they train a model on whatever ImageNet or whatever data set they want. Um, and then they try to see, okay, we've tested on the test set. Um, we look at the error distribution and we try to understand where the model fails or doesn't fail, right? Um, and that can be useful, but it's possible that your test set may just simply not be powerful enough for you to draw any meaningful conclusions um, if you go through that analysis, right? So two different kinds of tools, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, you had you had a really interesting quote here. It, it was pretty uh, like forward-looking. And you said that advances in computational efficiency should allow us to move on from MNIST-like data to large-scale data, and this is definitely an interesting avenue for future work. Um, so I just wanted to ask, like, where was the idea of scale at the time? I mean, like, it's one thing to consider single layer versus like three or four layers. Was anyone thinking that, you know, in less than a decade, people would be training twenty layers or fifty layers? Was that idea kind of floating around at the time? Uh, I think so. Is but. You know, even when AlexNet came by, which is when was that? Like 2011, 2012, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And that was like a by 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 the standards of 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 that uh, year. That was a humongous network, and we we didn't think that this would like be feasible, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, 
yeah, we didn't really think that things would go that <laughs> far, that fast. Um, so I don't want to claim that like I knew, but there was some. Certainly, there was some sort of. Um, this was like uh, at, with the advent of like these GPUs, uh, we were sort of just like we were only then starting to use them in a meaningful way, right? And and uh, I remember the first time that you know we ran something and then we optimized it well for for the the GPU and it was like it was amazing. We can get like a ten x speed up. Because like all the weights and all the, the data set itself could like be loaded on them in the GPU's memory, and it was amazing, right? So I was like, wow, maybe like when the GPU memory is going to be much bigger, then we could do even even crazier stuff. So, mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, I don't think we anticipated that we would where where we would be in ten years from then. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see, and then. Kind of another kind of just loosely related thing that I want to ask about is just your perspective looking back on benchmarks. So like at the time you mentioned that MNIST was a benchmark and in some sense, a fixed benchmark might not have these uh, controllable factors of variation uh, aside from some uh, some counterexamples where like the benchmark itself is, is doing that. Uh, but yet they seem to be a large driver of, of progress over time. So do you think that we could continue this kind of benchmark-driven progress? Or do you see the idea of a benchmark changing in the future? That, for instance, there's issues with uh, overfitting to a certain benchmark or just focusing too much on a certain benchmark? Yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm conflicted as to you know what the what the what the desirable future should be yeah. uh, I do see value in in a standardized sort of you know number reporting because it's just it's just easier to make sort of meaningful comparisons right um, mm -hmm. people have an intuitive understanding as to what top one performance on imagenet is or isn't. Um, on the other hand, I don't quite know how valuable it is to be sort of state of the art on ImageNet anymore, right? Despite it being so used, um, so I, I feel like we've 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 squeezed that mm -hmm. that benchmark dry a bit. I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I think I think we're heading a bit into this, you know, especially if we're talking about sort of reinforcement learning stuff um, where it's much more difficult to do to do these even though there, there are standardized benchmarks the actual evaluation protocol um, you know there are subtle differences between papers that can 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 completely change the ordering of, of the methods even just like random seeds of the same method can 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 make or break um, and that that complicates things quite a bit, and that's just beyond like sort of factors of variation or any of that stuff, right? These are simple benchmarks uh, that were with people with lots of resources have trained big models and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's maybe the other end of the spectrum of like 
RL evaluating uh, reinforcement learning methods um, is hard. Uh, and I don't know if introducing more complexity will make things easier. <laughs> yeah, so making sure, that, I guess, that we move on from certain benchmarks after a while uh, to make sure maybe that the, the benchmarks are getting closer and closer to the AI set versus just uh, working on eking out a bit more performance. And then it sounds like in RL, just making sure that they're actually testing the right things potentially. Testing the right things and also like sort of figuring out if the numbers are even comparable with each other. Right? Mm, so then the, the second section of the thesis is really focused around this unsupervised pre-training. So was this a similar motivation that you maybe had this technique and there wasn't much empirical evidence for it? Or what was kind of the backstory behind doing this investigation? Yeah, we, I mean, basically uh, this, the, the state of things was that uh, the field moved fast and I was just rereading my thesis and I was, I was, I had this comment in there where I said, oh, uh, this was 2010. As of November, 2010, uh, the, the, the Jeff Hinton's paper, the Deep Leaf Network paper uh, was cited uh, 330 times or however many times um, <laughs> uh, in, in the last four years. And I, you know, and I said, this is, this is a, it's a evidence that, uh, that this field is growing very quickly. And you know that just shows you like how small the field was, where yeah, I thought yeah. uh, only ten years ago, right? And I think this paper now has like I don't know, fifteen thousand citations. <laughs> uh, and um, so there were there, were, but still, I think the reality is that those three hundred citations of that paper were basically like modifications of that method, right? Um, so there was like three hundred papers, and as as a grad student, I I sort of had in, infinite attention to like just read. Uh, to read all papers on this. And a lot of them are like, well, we're going to try this variation of contrastive divergence. We're going to try this variation of pre-training, autoencoders, denoising autoencoders, blah, 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 all kinds of stuff. Um, but back then, no one really sort of seemed to ask the questions like, okay, well, we're trying this, but why does it work? Like, what what exactly does it do? Like, why does it, why, you know, is there something, you know, is there something about this particular sequence of actions that we're doing that makes things work versus just like randomly initializing the network. Um, so that was a sort of the backstory. We were sort of a bit mystified by by this. And then realistically also uh, me, Aaron Corville, who was kind of unofficially my, my the, the PhD co-advisor mm-hmm. and, and Joshua had, I'd say significant disagreements as to the effect of pre-training, um, and so we just decided to just test out a bunch of ideas to see where, how we we can reconcile our our hypotheses with what actually happens in real, in real experiments. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the way you framed it, I guess, was in terms of these three different hypotheses: so conditioning, optimization, and regularization. And it seems mm-hmm. like the results favored this regularization hypothesis. So could you just give an overview of, of what this hypothesis was and maybe how you, like going into the experiments, did you expect the results to favor that? Going into the experiments, I wasn't sure where we're going to land. Um, and, you know, I 
I can't quite remember. Like it's, you never quite, or maybe maybe other people are are better at this. But it's not like we 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 uh, we we made uh, we. Uh, it's not like we described these experiments uh, all of them in advance and then we did them. It's more like we did one experiment based on what we see in this experiment. Okay, what else should we try? And then so this is sort of a sequence of decisions that are maybe maybe don't make for very clean science, but I think it's very <laughs> it's very common. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think it was it was a very sort of typical like uh, sequence of decision makings. Like oh well, we tried it and we uh, both of these uh, kind of variations of what we wanted to try, and it looks like it behaves more like optimization or or it looks like it behaves more like regularization. I think one of the classical sort of experiments in there, or a, a case in point in there, we have this we have this figure where we did this sort of analysis of the of the functional representation of these networks. So we we basically take the test set, which take a bunch of these trained networks, um, and we save the checkpoints through time, uh, and we do like inference on the test set. And I haven't seen this done that many many times, even after. Is we concatenate basically the output of these networks uh, of a single network, of the output on the entire t- test set. So uh, it's just like a huge dimensional vector, um, and and we have a bunch of these uh, huge dimensional vectors, and we do dimensionality reduction. So we try to see you know how close these networks are in some sort of dim- high dimensional space, or maybe projected to low dimension uh, to right. see. Uh, how you know up to sort of functional representation how close they are um, and you know depends on how you look at that figure it can tell you different things <laughs> uh, and this is sort of this a bit of a source of the disagreement right like oh you know all the pre-trained networks seem to be like concentrated in one particular space um, compared to the networks that were randomly initialized and have no pre-training does that mean regularization optimization depends uh we argue that it's regularization because that one of the hallmarks of regularization is that it does variance reduction so variance reduction means that somehow the the output uh the outputs should vary less i guess naively um things like that so there was a lot of of that uh uh of that kind of experimental science i would say where we, we did a bunch of these experiments we 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 looked up basically the definition <laughs> well, we knew the definition but still we sort of what does it mean for a regularizer what does a regularizer typically do well typically it mean it, it creates some sort of a bias uh and that means that your training error should be higher on, oh, so the training error should be higher, yes, on on your training set, because due to the regularizer, you're not able to optimize as well on the training set. So we were like, well, well, let's measure this training error on the training set <laughs> and let's compare. Um, so we got a, we got a lot of this kind of evidence where it's like, does it does it look like a regularizer? Does it smell like a regularizer? Does it behave like a regularizer? And then in the end, it's like, yeah, it kind of does, right? But it's a different kind of regularizer from from like putting just putting l2 on top of your network yeah i see yeah these these visualizations were really interesting so you basically like you're saying concatenate 
all the outputs. So you're somehow visualizing the uh, like the function itself. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a cool idea. So you haven't seen this used as much today. It seems like this would be useful in today's day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even I haven't. I mean, I, I've done this, and I'm like, this seems like cool. I was like looking at those pictures, like, yeah, those are, those look fun. But yeah, we haven't done that. I mean, probably probably worth revisiting. I don't know for what purposes, but. <laughs> you know, back then this took forever. I remember, like, just creating that one of those figures. I think took took like a couple of days. I think now it would take a couple of minutes, just waiting yeah. for 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 TSNI to converge. So these methods, um, I guess, ultimately, when you're doing this unsupervised pre-training, it's finding some initial point for optimization. Mm-hmm. So at least at that level, we could connect them to methods that we use today for pre-training networks. Uh, where we pre-train, say, on ImageNet and then fine-tune on some other data set and similar things in NLP. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of where the similarity stops or do you kind of still use the intuitions from working on these models for thinking about today's methods for uh, pre-training? Mm. No, I can't say that we use these kinds of intuitions. Mm-hmm. I did some... I don't know if it's published though, so not. So I don't want to talk too much about it. But someone did send me the, one of their papers on where, where they were doing some sort of greedy um, kind of pre-training of some hierarchical VAE method. But the greedy aspect of it, I think, it's not that popular, as far as I know. Uh, the pre-training aspect, I think, it's it's popular. But I think p- most people do these days is like a more supervised pre-training. I find in, in computer vision at least, um, where where they would like take the checkpoint from an ImageNet pre-trained convolutional neural network and then just fine-tune it on their data set of choice. Um, I don't know if in computer vision people truly have used um, unsupervised pre-training with great success. I could be wrong, but I, I think that this is still one of these dreams where we would love to use a bunch of unsupervised data uh, uh, to to actually make supervised learning better, mm-hmm. it's definitely something that people have used in in uh, in natural language. Uh, don't get me wrong, but in computer right. vision, I don't think it's quite true. Yeah, and then something like BERT would be similar to these denoising autoencoders, which you were also right. looking in, into in your thesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just one last question on this. I, I was curious about the intuitions about this optimization at the time. I guess because by now we have like textbooks about deep learning with these different visualizations and we can build up some intuition of what's going on when we're optimizing this high dimensional space. But how did you kind of build up some intuition that was ultimately useful for, uh, you know, developing methods about, about this optimization process? I mean, like you had this idea of like basin of attraction, like where does that idea actually come from? Um, probably the, the basin of attraction idea that probably comes from, from either Joshua or Aaron, <laughs> I don't want to claim, uh, I think that's probably lifted from one of their, like one of their position papers. Um, but I think, you know, the difference between, you know, uh, Joshua was a big fan back then of, of just sort of stating some of these ideas. Uh, and I was, I was a big fan of trying to understand to which extent they, <laughs> they are true. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, a lot of the stuff that people, a lot of the optimization intuitions that people had back then 
were rooted a bit in in sort of convex optimization kind of ideas. We were trying to understand to which extent sort of of course you you can just like uh, look at the theorem from from some convex optimization textbook and and say well it must behave the same way in the neural network. So obviously it doesn't right. And, and and generally you can't like compute the Hessian and and you can't just like look at the the landscape right um, so we had to sort of figure out proxies for for a lot of our intuitions um, but there were people who were trying quite hard to to incorporate some of the convex kind of optimization ideas into building better optimizers um, and I don't want, like, it, there was quite a, there was a big period, a couple of years where a bunch of these now famous folks like uh, Ilya Sutskever and, and others, they were trying to do Hessian free or quasi second order methods. Um, I don't think they ever got that huge success with that. Um, mm. And, you know, once things like Adam and came, came around, that, that was, uh, that was a, there was no need for second order methods. Um, right. So we were we were we were poking a bit a bit in the dark, just just to be clear. So it was we were looking for a lot of evidence, but mostly circumstantial or indirect or proxy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So the third part is about uh, understanding the representations that are learned by these architectures, uh, and I guess through visualization in this case, where you're doing this activation maximization technique. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, again, like we've seen images like this in all the different you know, textbooks and, and blog posts and papers and things like that. But when you first saw these uh, visualized filter-like responses, how kind of surprising was that? It was somewhat surprising, I guess. I guess um, it, it was hard to really understand if what we were looking at was meaningful, mm. I think that's the that's the issue with with uh, with doing such visualizations, because by by sort of definition you're you're looking at some very low dimensional projection of what a uh, of what a particular unit in that network does, uh, because truly each of these units is kind of um, represents some sort of manifold in the input space. Um, mm. If you want to think about like the subset of all the natural images that somehow activate or inactivate a particular hidden unit um, is unlikely to be just one one image. It's probably a, quite a number of them. So this was an, an exercise in, like, in, in trying to generalize some of the, the things that people did before. Uh, like I think Jeff Hinton and others, they had these visualizations and we wanted to formalize this a bit more as an optimization problem. Um, and I think it's not very different from what people in neuroscience were doing. It was a fun diversion where we got a couple of, a uh, couple of fun uh, pictures and we showed, I think that this, the, 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 the representations that seem to be learned by networks that are pre-trained versus networks that are not pre-trained are quite different. Uh, and pre-training seemed to have induced uh, more more pleasing to the eye visualizations. Um, but uh, but it was also the root of you know I I was always a bit um, dissatisfied with um, 
with the state of things. Like we got we got these visualizations, but what do they mean? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we make sense of them? Um, what is uh, what is a did you know what is a good visualization versus not a good visualization? Um, is there is there a a a is there a right way to interpret neural networks? Um, and I don't think that I mean this is still very much an active area of research. Um, people are still definitely trying to do to explain neural networks, um, but I don't think there's like a, a right answer yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to tie in with this issue, for instance, of like unreliability of saliency maps, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets at this this question of does it just kind of look convincing or is it actually uh, representing some underlying insight into the model? Yeah. And there's also like this idea of like, does it, does it, does it show you something that you that you knew already <laughs> or like, what do you learn out of it? Right. <laughs> I think that's the, uh, that's the part. Like a lot of, I, I read some of these papers. I'm like, you know, they, they would have a picture of a dog or something like that. And then like, well, the saliency map shows me that the classifier thinks that the dog is here. Uh, like, okay, but could you have not done this any other way? Does it show you something else? Is it useful? So it's 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 tricky. Like I, I, I mean, I don't want to sort of, you know, bash an entire sort of, you know, <laughs> area of research, but it's, it's, I think it's showing the value proposition of, of these, of these methods. Um, in terms of do they help us debug methods? Uh, do they help us debug uh, models? Do they help us debug data sets? Mm-hmm. And I know you've talked to Bean, and of course she she she's a world-class expert on this, and she has a couple of exciting papers on this. And so there are people that are, that are genuinely sort of, you know, and she's one of them sort of leading the advances, advances in this. And we actually, yeah, we did write a paper, me and her with a uh, couple of other people, Sarah Hooker and um, and Peter Jan Kindermans, where we're trying to actually evaluate these saliency methods. We're trying to understand, figure out, can we can we come with, with a number that says this saliency method somehow sh- truly shows us the salient parts of the, of, the, of the data set or not? Those were really the three main sections of the PhD. So then following the PhD, one of the things that, you did was to work on Google Photos, right? During mm-hmm. really when all of the image recognition was was taking off. So, do you have any like an- anecdotes about what it was like at that time, and kind of going from this mindset of of you know three hundred citations was a lot on a paper just a few years ago, and now uh, now we're talking like the tens of, of thousands. Yeah, I so I joined Google. Like just before AlexNet sort of dropped, like a few months before that. So this is sort of summer, summer 2012 or so, I think. Um, and we were back then, you know, the state of the art in terms of like computer vision was all like deformable parts models, all these like more handcrafted features, histograms of gradients and stuff like that. Um, and support vector machines on top, uh, fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, basically, it was me and Christian Segeri who uh, 
now is famous for he invented adversarial examples among other things but also the inception network mm-hmm. um, so we were working together and uh, I think we were the only two people working on deep networks in in that sort of bigger team doing kind of the, the behind uh, kind of Google Photos image understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing which I wanted to say is, yeah, this was, I think Google Brain as a team didn't exist or maybe it was just at the very inception of it or they were like, I think the Brain team itself was, I'm not even sure what, what they were doing. No, oh no, it did exist. Yeah, sorry. They were they had this they had this paper, what I I think is affectionately affectionately called the cat neuron paper. Um, so this is at the time of Andrew Ang was part of the brain team, and he and Jeff Dean decided to and whoever else was part of that team decided to train this gigantic neural network on like I don't know how many GPUs, sixteen thousand GPUs or something, um, without weight sharing and on a bunch of YouTube videos or something. And I think they they discovered that when, when they visualized one of the neurons that it learned the concept of a cat. Um, and for some reason that made it to the New York Times, I think. So it was easy to make, make it to the front page of the New York Times uh, back then, I think. Um, um, yeah. So we again, I think this was a period of of a, a bit of of low hanging fruit. So, so maybe I got lucky a couple of times in my life, um, where you know AlexNet was truly a, like a shocking result. I think to many people, I think it's hard to sort of um, it's hard to overestimate just how incredulous people were, uh, especially in computer vision. Like people didn't believe it. Um, uh, they were like, what? It's impossible that it works so well because it was so much better than everything else. Um, so people furiously re-implemented it. And, you know, once, once you know, people retrained those, that model on uh, the internal stuff and they saw the big differences, that was, this, that was quite the turning point, I'd say. Uh, it was very, very simple to convince people when the results are so good. Uh, uh, and so much better. Um, so, you know, we did a lot of stuff in terms of like trying to make it bigger, better. Uh, I spent a lot of time doing um, um, object detection, which was my main focus for a couple of years. Um, and we published a couple of couple of relatively influential papers on this um, that were sort of doing object detection end to end, and they were pretty popular. So. Yeah, I think that was where the the low low hanging fruit at the time is to is to say, well, we know the deep networks are good now. We know that values and atom and uh, size uh, and GPUs they can be thrown at this, um, and so let's use them the, these big gigantic function approximators with a lot of data to figure out what can we make, what can we transform into an optimization problem, right? So we did a lot of that. Yeah, and uh, one of them was this Google Net, which was 22 layers. And so like you mentioned before, I don't think you would have been able to predict that people would be training models that size a few years back, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so nowadays, some of your work is on model-based reinforcement learning. Mm-hmm. So do you see a connection between what you worked on during your PhD and then these object detection me- methods? Or 
was this kind of just a new area that you branched into? I was excited by model-based reinforcement learning by a couple of conversations that I had with um, with Sergey Levin. So he is a professor at Berkeley and he's also kind of part-time in, in the brain team. And um, he sold me on this idea of kind of video prediction, I guess, let's just call it this way, um, of the fact that we could potentially use unsupervised learning or, or generative models to bootstrap uh, model learning for RL, right? So this is the idea, what people call like world models or, you know, I don't know if there's other ways, but basically the idea of using, of doing model-based reinforcement learning, but not from ground truth states, uh, but from observations. And um, it appealed to me because, uh, and it's still appealing to me, I'm still working on this, because this is, it does connect a bit to what we were saying before. Um, because this is the idea of, of, of using these uh, unsupervised and maybe even generative models to somehow bootstrap, right? To learn a representation um, that can then be used as initialization for for something where you have rewards, something for which you have supervised data, um, and that can help you. So, um, yeah, there's a connection, I guess. Yeah. So, in terms of the the potential for the unsupervised learning, mm-hmm. what do you think about the potential for kind of like an image net? I guess image net was supervised pre training. Uh, but maybe something similar to what happened in language where uh, there's kind of this this shift once we figure out how to do unsupervised training well. Do you foresee something like that happening potentially soon in reinforcement learning? Or are there kind of key differences between these different uh, problem settings? I think the key difference it depends on what what kind of reinforcement learning you you're talking about so if you're talking about sort of you know um uh agent that has like that looks at the world from a perspective of a camera uh it's very different from natural language processing um because simply because the the input space is so much more high dimensional right um and that that is truly a challenge right like trying to predict uh what will happen if you take this action versus taking another action is, is, is surprisingly hard. Um, like actually predicting sort of the pixels of the next, in the next second. Um, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a hugely problematic kind of, you know, uh, learning challenge. There's so many things about like high dimensionality and stochasticity and partial observability and things like that. Um, I don't want to say that this is, you know, that NLP somehow, you know, doesn't have stochasticity or partial observability, but the 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 fact that you're basically your your input is effectively tokenized, um, mm. that makes it so much easier. Like if if you had a robot and its input space was all the objects that it, it sees with their like 3D poses and orientations and uh, and their masses or something like that, um, that would simplify things quite a bit <laughs> in terms of in terms of uh, so you don't have to do this like 
uh, understand seen understanding, right? Um, so if you if you if you if you skip the seen understanding part, um, then maybe you can uh, accelerate quite a bit. And this is what is one of the reasons why a lot of the RL papers are actually skipping this seen understanding part, right? They they don't they assume that they know the ground truth states of the world because it just simplifies things quite a bit. And even so, it's still a pretty hard problem to train agents in such a in, with on 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 e effectively unrealistic uh, assumption that you know what and where everything of relevance is. Mm -hmm. I see. We had John Schoolman on the podcast and we were talking about OpenAI 5 mm -hmm. and just how, at least at the time, it was pretty surprising that just a purely model-free based method was able to be trained to ultimately beat the top players in Dota. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there's a potential that as we just scale up larger and larger model-free methods, that that could be somehow sufficient or... Uh, do you think these model-based methods are necessary? Uh, I don't believe that model-free approaches will be sufficient. I mean, I think they will be sufficient for for places where you can get like uh, effectively unlimited uh, clean data, so to say. Hmm. Uh, so if you're if you're if you're basically can generate uh, unlimited uh, data. And you know, I don't quite remember if there's like partial observability or not in in Dota. I, I don't know much about that work. I, I, mm -hmm. I have to say, um, or if you're like in the AlphaGo kind of setting, um, I don't want to minimize those settings. I mean, they're, they're still like impressive achievements, um, but I don't think that that's sort of a, a scalable approach for um, for tasks where you may just not have. Like you may have like just a few trajectories, right? Uh, you you and you can't like just sort of generate an infinite amount of 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 like dense rewards um, just to feed your quasi supervised uh, model free method. So I do believe one of the things which maybe ties also with my desire of understanding things is one of the things which I really like about model-based approaches is that they give you, they kind of give you explainability for free in some sort of sense. Mm. Um, you can ask a lot of counterfactual questions. You can ask what will happen, you know, what, what is, what, what will happen if the agent does this, right? Like you can, you can, you can essentially ask the agent to imagine the consequences of its own actions, right? Um, and that's very good if you're trying to do things like maybe you're trying to build a self-driving car, um, or especially if you're trying to build a self-driving car, you may even consider building models of other agents, right? Your, your, your self-driving car, you're trying to understand what the other agents will be doing, uh, you know, and potentially all of these agents that you see, you may see them for the first time. You may not have enough data to train a very sophisticated uh, approach, but maybe you can initialize and quickly build a, a, a model of what the other agents will be doing and try to understand uh, what kind of actions they will be taking in response to, to your action, in response to your hypothetical action. What if I stop? What if I turn right? What if I turn left? What will the other agents do? Um, beyond just modeling your own actions, 
uh, you can try to sort of model with these model-based approaches the actions of other other agents. So I think there's a lot of these kinds of um, uh, situations where I believe model-based approaches will be will be useful. I'm also a believer that I think model-based approaches can be useful in quickly transferring or quickly generalizing, um, especially sort of to, to new tasks or to new domains or new objects. If the underlying sort of physics or underlying properties of the scene do not change, um, you should be able to quickly do that without sort of training everything from scratch. Uh, I don't know to which extent that's really feasible with model-free approaches. I think generally they're pretty brittle. So... Um, mm-hmm. There's there's trade-offs in there. And yeah, that is interesting that uh, even if like just hypothetically the performance ends up being equal for the two, then the model-based methods have these different properties of doing like the counterfactuals like you like you were talking about. So mm-hmm. and then um, just one other uh, one other just high-level question. So you actually posed these three questions in your thesis about um, kind of things that you wanted to that or the field wants to learn more about, I guess. Uh, and maybe I'll just pick one and we can get a sense of have we made kind of progress on this. So one is, are there any intrinsic limitations in the used recipe? And so maybe here you were referring to a specific training recipe or, or something from the thesis, but just more broadly in terms of deep learning, do you think that we have some sense of whether there are some intrinsic limitations? I mean, sure. I'm, I'm sure there are. <laughs> um, Whether they're meaningful, I guess, is the question. I I I, I suspect, um, especially if you follow like the some of the some of the panel discussions between like Gary Marcus and and Yann mm-hmm. and and people like that. So there's been a, a, a it's a kind of a hot debate these days as to incorporating kind of causal structure into 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 these models right like it's one thing to learn effectively the correlation between the input and the output which is what like a, a vanilla feed forward neural network would do for you um and quite another to understand which part of the input is has some sort of causal effect on the output um and i i am i I'll, I'll admit I, I don't know much about this. You know, I, I have Judy Pearl's book and, you know, I should read more about this t- kind of topic. But my understanding is that we don't necessarily have a good grasp of of how to do this with, with deep nets. Uh, though there are there are many people working on this. So um, I, I don't necessarily believe that sort of we un- we truly understand the dynamics of learning and optimization in 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 deep networks uh i i i i feel like we're still poking in the dark we're like we're ha- we're we're lucky that whatever we we're doing works despite the fact that there are many results saying that it should not work um like it's not obvious that batch sgd with adam should work on like a ResNet 50 or something. Um, I, there are many people trying to, to understand like what does the landscape of local minima look like and so forth. But uh, 
yeah, I, I believe we're lucky that it works and we don't know why. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have truly figured out how to do... I think we have a good grasp on how to do like a function approximation like style of, uh, of uh, okay, we have a, a bunch of clean uh, labeled uh, uh, data, like you think of think ImageNet or something bigger. And, you know, we know how to create bigger and better networks that just get better and better results over time on that. I don't know that we have, uh, um, I don't know if that we have this kind of recipe for, uh, for unsupervised learning of images specifically or videos or for generative models. I know that there's a lot of, of course, there's a lot of like results with GANs. Um, uh, they are they're also brittle in, in in their own different ways, um, but yeah, we don't we don't beyond not having like a standard recipe for such a thing. We also I don't think we have a particular use of these methods in terms of okay, now we have a a model a non supervised model of images. Can we use it to do something uh, useful afterwards? Can we improve some? Uh, supervised learning method using that that model. I'm sure there are some papers, and I think you know there are some some cases where it is it is the thing to do. Uh, but generally, that's not what people do. It's not like people train an, a generative. People don't train a GAN and then they initialize their ResNet 50 to train on ImageNet. That's not mm -hmm. what they do. They just train ResNet 50 on ImageNet, and it works. Um, they don't need an unsupervised method for that. So why is it that we're not able to do that? What is it? What's the, what's the thing that's missing? So I don't know what's missing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so it sounds like even if there are some limitations, there's certainly a wide frontier of things to do, like within this same kind of paradigm, if we think like really broadly about these paradigm shifts that happen, right? Like we'll probably remain in the same paradigm for still a while, do you think? I know these are just completely speculative questions. Very hard. Yeah. If you had asked me like 10 years ago where we would be now, I don't think right. my answer have a very high correlation with reality. Um, it's just a fun, fun question to speculate. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think we will probably have like, I think I underestimated to which extent we like hardware explosion uh, would come um, and how much, how, how crazy our models would be in terms of size and complexity. Uh, but I don't know if like Moore's law or whatever, whatever other, other law uh, will make like, we'll, we'll obviously not have such an explosion 10 years from now, but who knows? This is recorded. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, this has been this has been really fun. I have just f two final questions that I'm gonna at least start doing, I guess, at the end of of each episode. So the first is like speaking of of optimization. If you could view kind of doing the PhD as some optimization process and just your research career as a whole, what would you say was your objective function during the PhD? Was it really about like scientific uh, exploration? Was it about you know, setting up career prospects? And then do you think that that changed since your PhD? Certainly. Um, 
there's a lot of angst during a PhD as to why am I doing this? Mm. So <laughs> I don't know if I had like a, I think I, the objective function was unknown to me at the time. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's 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 uh, easy for me now to claim that my objective function was scientific exploration, but it was probably a mix of like curiosity and and um, a bit of momentum of like, well, I I did I did machine learning research before, and it seemed like I was doing a good job, so I should continue doing machine learning research. Uh, because I don't know how to do anything better than this. Um, uh, so a bit of laziness in there. Um, and maybe, yeah, career advancement. I, you know, I don't want to sort of uh, underestimate that. I, my PhDs kind of crossed this, uh, the time that it happened. It was like right in the middle of the, the global financial crisis, 2008. Um, and that was a tough time for AI, like... Um, the, the 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 funding were cut there was no like you couldn't become a professor or certainly not that many places were hiring so um a bit stressful in that sense um since then i think now i mean i don't see this what i'm doing now is necessarily a sort of advancing my career now it's more of a yeah scientific understanding exploration i think i'm back to sort of um trying to understand how i don't want to say how the world works but like building models that that are that are interesting and things that i can that that are somehow applicable and are useful um and that um that we can kind of answer interesting questions with and then the last question of the thesis review is always can you come up with one piece of advice to a new researcher and it it doesn't have to be all encompassing, but maybe just one useful thing that someone could keep in mind. Um, I think if you come across something surprising, um, it's always sort of worth investigating. Like, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a degree of, of, you know, qualification in there. Not, you know, not every, not everything that's surprising is, is interesting scientifically, but if you, if you tried something new um, and it works surprisingly well or, or, or it works surprisingly badly, uh, maybe, uh, it's always worth in the investigating. Uh, and I think especially if you're a grad student, you have a lot more liberty and a lot more time, I find, um, to just sort of go on wild tangents and just go to the deep end. And figuring out, you know, why? Why is this surprising? Why is this? Why did this work or did not work according to my expectations? Uh, and this path will always, maybe not always, but personally has always led me to to sort of just learning more, right? Even if it, the answer is not satisfactory, you will learn something uh, along the way about maybe your assumptions about things, or maybe you'll just learn something new about the technique, or you'll learn about something about yourself. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. And thanks so much for doing this conversation. It, it was really fun to go back and not only just read through your PhD, but but talk through this because it kind of lines up with a nice history of of the methods that so much of uh, so much of our time and focus is spent on today. So this is really fun. And thanks so much for taking the time to uh, come on the thesis review. Thank you. Thanks for, for the invitation. This was fun. Yeah.